You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Great. We've been, um, this is our fourth week, we're looking at Nehemiah. If you've got a Bible, I'd love you to open it up, just uh, by way of introduction, really. Uh, This was a guy that was rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. They'd fallen into disrepair. They'd been attacked, to be totally honest, 150 years before. And uh, he got it on his heart to go and build these. And you might think, Pete, I'm not a builder. I don't do DIY. I'm not really good on DIY either. You might think, what on earth has this got to do with us? We believe that really this is a story of two cities. So as he was building the physical city of Jerusalem, he was restoring the city of God. And we believe that throughout the Bible, you get this picture of these two cities going on. And actually that what we're doing, and we believe that Redeemer is part of that, is we want to see the kingdom of God built. We believe it's almost like there will be one day when we'll all sit in heaven, but we're almost bringing some of that right down here and now. So whether you collect a jam jar, or whether you invite someone to Alpha, or whether you sign a gift aid form, what we're really trying to say is, this is us building a city together for the glory of God here. So we're going to be looking at Nehemiah 5, and uh, Nick is going to read the chapter to us again. This week, because there's not so many long names, so (laughs) here we go, Nehemiah chapter 5. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been um, enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, You're exacting usury from our own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could not find anything to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the the people money and grain. But let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses. And also the usury that you are charging them. The hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine and oil. We We will give it back. Sorry, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep his promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, amen. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. 
Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until this 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lauded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, O my God, for all that I have done for these people. Great, let's pray. Father, we do believe that this story is much to teach us. I pray that in this time where we're before you and your word that we'll hear from you. Lord, I pray that you'd speak right into our hearts. Lord, we, we thank you as we've gathered together this morning and we've come to worship you. You've sung over us. Lord, we've loved it. Lord, as, as we come now, we want to hear you speak to us and we do want to be changed. God, we don't just turn up at church to sort of tick a box. We come here because we love you. We want to cling upon your every word. So, Father, we pray that you would speak to us, that people hear your voice, not just mine. In Jesus' name, amen. Right, I, I want to uh, deal with this chapter. In some respect, I feel quite nervous about it. I'm aware that I've got some... Edward sat here, works for Tear Fund, works uh, for a Christian organization that is so committed to eradicating poverty around the world. I'm aware that I live in Ealing, and actually, if I'm really honest, you know, you think, oh, I'd like to buy these clothes or live in this place. How do I understand this chapter? How do I understand God's heart about the poor? How do I really live? And I hope that we could look at this, we can understand this, and I hope that this helps us build this church together. I would love to have brought four points this morning because I feel like I'm often turning up with three. But honestly, when I look at the passage, I feel it splits very easily into three. I would try and think of four points for next week. For this week, there's three again. The fact is, verse one to five, I feel very much tells us about the problem that Nehemiah faced. Basically, these are good folk, but they've hit hard times. These are the people that we know are building the city of God. We know that they've given up what they were doing. Many of them were growing things, agricultural community, to come in and build the walls. We know that it, it was a miracle, really, what happened. The restoring of these walls in 52 days was amazing. But actually, they've hit trouble. We know that they've got big families. They've got to buy grain. They've got to borrow money. The problem is so stressful, and we don't often get this in the book of Nehemiah, the women get involved. Right at the beginning of the chapter, it's not just logical, it's emotional, this problem. You know, there's suddenly this challenge, what are we going to do? How are we going to feed our families? I read this week, there's three main causes of poverty. 
oppression, natural disaster, and sin. I would say that these people had two out of three. They were being oppressed for years. And actually, we know that there was famine going on, so there was a natural disaster. We do not believe that they were caught in sin on this particular one. They are poor. It tells us famines occurred. It tells us they've got to pay a tax to the king. You know, in those days that when foreign powers ruled over you, which they had over Jerusalem, they put a tax on you, and the tax wasn't to pay for street lighting. The tax wasn't to pay to have your rubbish collected. The tax was so that the king in another country could take your gold and keep it in his house. I mean, that, that was how it worked in those days. And they, they were under this tax, under these foreign powers. There are many poor today. The homelessness in the UK has risen for the last three years. 185,000 people live homeless in the UK. Apparently the working poor, I didn't have time to read the whole article this morning, but even this morning, I know the BBC News have put out, the working poor, there's more than 13 million that are considered working poor in this country. In fact, the poor in work are more than the poor out of work. Children in poverty in the UK, they reckon there's 4 million children in poverty. 31%. Elderly and poverty in the UK, they reckon there's 2 million elderly folk in the UK that suffer from food poverty, struggling to find things to eat. Would I include poverty? I'd probably include even like a prison population. Because I think, what has that done for them or what has that done for this family? Uh, Today, there's over 85,000 people in prison in the UK. And these could be physical things that I could describe, but I think if I really wanted to look at the picture of poverty today, I think poverty of spirit is greater than material poverty. And actually, we did, you, you, know, you suddenly think of the UK and you think of those with eating disorders, those that are lonely. So in many respects, what Nehemiah is facing, the problem that he is facing is true today. We know here that the problem is the poor are hungry, they're broke, and it says they're powerless. I cannot imagine what it must have been like to get to the state of having to sell your own kid to raise money. But this is what they were doing, slavery. Basically, they were saying, look, you can have my kid to pay my debt. What I do know is you can't eat walls. These guys, not walls ice cream, walls as in the bricks. I mean, these guys, they were facing a huge challenge here, weren't they? They were doing the work of God. But this was the problem for them. And then suddenly we get this little word. There's there's this outcry, an outcry of the poor. Now, if you know the Bible, you know that there was another outcry. And that was in the beginning of Exodus. And this is when the people of God were in slavery, and it says that they cried out to God, and it says God heard their cry, and basically he thinks, right, I'm going to bring them out of freedom from this slavery. They'd been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. You see, God listens, God hears, and God acts. The good news, I believe, therefore, is meant to be good news to the poor. It says in Isaiah, Isaiah 58, verse 6 and 7, 
Is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen to loose the chains of injustice and, and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. I think this, is, this has always been on God's heart. God's heart is to reach out and to touch those that are poor. Jesus himself, when he came and he was, you know, in Luke 4, he basically, he's, he's, he'd be in a meeting like this and they would have said, anybody want to share? And I thought it was great this morning, people singing out, great people praying out with pictures. They would have been in a meeting like this and said, anyone want to share? And Jesus would have come out and read something and then he said, this is going to be true now. And what he read is in Luke 4. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When I'm thinking about this city that was being built in Jerusalem and Nehemiah and what he was doing, he was there facing the problem of the poor. I think this has got to be a challenge to us today. Sometimes I can find the Bible really sobering on these things. Jesus tells the parable, doesn't he, in, in Matthew 25, dividing the sheep from the goats. And basically, why did he, now you wish you'd sat on this side, I'm sure. Why does he say, you guys are sheep? Well, if you know the parable, you know, he said, well, actually, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me some of this drink. And they said, look, when did we ever do that? He said, when you did it for the least of these, you did it for me. And he said to these guys, actually, depart. Why? Because you didn't do it. It wasn't on what they'd believed. It was actually on what they'd done, which we could find quite shocking, really. But this was Jesus' whole sort of thing to his disciples. He said, actually, it's great in some respect what you believe, but then actually, how do we live this? The gospel has got to be good news. And I think when I think back to the way he was building that, I think surely I've got to believe that for us today. We've got fantastic news. You know what I'm saying? Sam says we should be excited. Of course we should be excited. The gospel is this. If you're dead, then you can be made alive. Dead in your sin, then you can be made alive. If you feel guilty, you can be forgiven. If you feel dirty, you can be cleansed. If you feel captive, Somebody prayed out this morning, I was addicted, I was captive to my sin or to my habits. You can be set free. If you've been rejected, you can be reconciled. If you're in pain, you can be healed. I mean, come on, there's got to be some amens in the house, hasn't there? I mean, if we genuinely believe this is the gospel, if you grieve, you can be comforted. If you're despairing, you can know hope. I mean, this is the gospel, isn't it? And so, actually, I think we live amongst the poor with such great news. So what was the solution? Well, verse 1 to 5, I think Nehemiah was understanding the problem that was going on in Jerusalem. Verse 6 to 14 is the solution that he then brings. So he does not ignore the plight of the poor, even though he's building the great walls. I mean, that is a challenge, isn't it? Are we those that, you know... We're doing great things for God. Are we still remembering the poor? Tim Chester, who's an author and a church leader, 
says this, if churches become so preoccupied with their religion that they ignore the needs of the poor, then they're in danger of becoming more like the Pharisees than Jesus. Oh, golly. I think that's a challenge, isn't it? If we're so preoccupied with their religion, they ignore the needs of the poor, then they're in danger of becoming more like the Pharisees than Jesus. So, so how did he go about this solution? What happened with Nehemiah? Well, actually, we find the first thing that happened, he got angry. He says he was angry. There was like some emotion in there. It's almost like it got to him, didn't it? There was once a, a TV interview with Mother Teresa. Now, I'm sure many of you heard of her, a Catholic nun that was working in the slums of India. And this TV reporter was sort of disgusted by the, the conditions and the poverty and the work that she was doing and all the nuns with her. And he actually said to her, he said, you know, if you paid me all the money in the world, I wouldn't do what you're doing. And do you know what she replied? Neither would I. Because it wasn't coming out of greed and money. It came out of a heart and emotion. She did it because God had put a love in her. And, and in some respect, we've got to get beyond this kind of sort of functional thing. We've got to have this emotional, I think, response. Actually, how do we feel about this? I, I, I always speak to myself. I feel very challenged on this one. I, I um, am involved in working out who preaches which week and part of the series. And when I was doing this one, I thought I should have asked somebody else to do this. I think, oh, God, what about me? You see, when it comes to the poor... Do I listen to newspaper headlines or do I listen to the Bible? Do I end up saying, oh, there's the deserving poor, the undeserving poor? Or do I listen to God's heart? Because when I get something like this of Nehemiah, I just think, man alive, he, he was right inside this. It was almost this anger that bursts out. It then says he pondered. He pondered the situation. It would have been so easy to have justified this. Apparently, they reckon, and I know that it talked about the hundredth part and the usury and all those kind of words that we might not use, but actually they were charging interest, which many commentators, and I've actually read 11 commentaries this week for this one. Nobody said they thought what they were doing was illegal. Nobody said that. They were saying, well, look, this was common practice. So, but he pondered it. Nehemiah was just thinking about it. You see, you could say that he was involved, his heart for the poor, it affected his heart, it affected his mind, it affects his body. You see, what is legally right can be morally wrong. And I think Nehemiah goes beyond, oh well, this is, this is the letter of the law. I think what happens is we see something of a heart here. And, and, it, and out of the heart, he then does this confrontation. Now, I, was, I thought I should try and act this all out this morning, but my acting skills are appalling, so I'm just going to talk it out. I feel that. I, um, some of you know Sandra is a, is a barrister. It's probably illegal, but I wanted to borrow her wig this morning and put it on and just argue the case because I feel that this is what Nehemiah does in this whole solution. It's almost like he, he's, he's, it's got into his heart, it's got into his head, and then he speaks it out to the people and he says this, look, you've got to remember the poor. Why? And he gives lots of reasons. In, in chapter 5 and verse 8, he's appealing to their conscience. He says, look, you've got to remember, these people, many of them that have come back to Jerusalem, he says, they used to be slaves to the Gentiles. 
But actually, God set them free and they've come back here. And you've just made them slaves again. I mean, how, how does your conscience sit with that? He said, well, surely that's terrible. I mean, they, they were slaves to the Gentiles. Well, that was one thing, but God set them free. Why are you making them slaves again? In the same verse, he's appealing, I would say, point two of this court case, if I could put it that way. He says, actually, what about your love? You see, he uses words like brother and community. You see, part of being the family of God is that we know we're loved by God, but that we love one another. You know, the whole thing is you can't just love God and then not love the other people around. You might think, well, I can't really get on with them. No, actually, this is part of what it is. It's always been that if we're part of the family of God. And he's saying, how on earth do you not love these people, the poor amongst you? And then in in verse 9, he's saying, look, although your actions might be right, I think he's challenging them. Are they morally wrong? If you want a good society, then you've got to start doing the right thing yourself. That's a huge challenge, isn't it? Because often we think, well, I'll do the legal thing myself. And he's saying, well, come on, do the right thing. I think in verse uh, 9 as well, he's saying, actually, we're believers. We believe in God. If we believe in God, it must impact the way that we live. Otherwise, we don't believe in God. He's saying, how can your, your lifestyle be, be, be separated from your belief? I would say in verse 9 as well, there's reference really. And, and if you know the whole of the Old Testament, you know they talked about a jubilee. Well, that was every 50 years you set the, the slaves free. Actually, there was this whole thing of not just set them free, but bless them on their way. Because God's way was almost this. If you looked at the biblical way, hey, look, we don't want to turn these people into slaves. We want to set them free. Whether it could be a seven-year cycle or a 50-year cycle. And, and it's almost in this. He's saying, well, look, surely this is biblical teaching. He also challenges them in verse 9. I've, I've lost how many points I'm up to. This is my appeal. It's why I wouldn't make a very good solicitor. He's actually saying, the way we live, people look at. And do you want people to look at the people of God and think they just make slaves of one another? You see, your lifestyle is a testimony, whether you like it or not. People are looking. People notice. What do they notice? He even gets involved in this argument, I would say, in verse 10, with personal experience. Now, some would say, you know, he was a rich man. We know that. I'm going on to that in just a moment. Nehemiah, he said, well, look, I was lending. Now, some say, well, maybe he was doing it wrong, and now he's doing it right. Well, some were saying, actually, he's trying to hold himself up as a model. I think what he's trying to say is, look, I'm not pointing the finger at you. This is all of us. We are all in. But what he said is this. The crux of the argument is don't delay, let's act today. You see, I love this because his heart way surpassed the law. The law was this, wasn't it? You could be free in seven years because that's what come through the Old Testament. If you're a slave, seven years was your best chance of getting off. If you could, you know, or maybe 50. What Nehemiah says is the heart of love says we set you free today. And I feel that there's this, this solution is let's not get legalistic about the poor. Let's have big heart towards the poor. It's almost not, well, what's the minimum we could get away with? Or what's the right thing? That, you know, it's actually, how do we have a big heart towards the poor? And, and, and because of that, two people that were really involved in running of society in those days was the priest and the prophet. 
And this was such an important topic that I believe that Nehemiah gets in the role of the priest and the prophet. So basically he says to these, who thinks this is a good idea? You know, it's a bit like Mark coming down. Who thinks I'm up for the cow service? And everyone goes, yes. And then what he says is, well, you say it, but are you going to do it? To make sure you're going to do it, I'm going to roll in the priest. So literally he brings the priest out and he says, right, everyone, say your oath now. We're going to be good to the poor. The priest is here. You better do it. And then he takes the role of the prophet, which is shaking the fault out. Many would say that this wasn't just a symbolic thing. This was almost the start of what was happening. If you don't remember the poor, I'll shake you out of my lap. It was like a prophetic picture. If you read like Jeremiah, they would take a jar and they would smash it. And people would think, oh, no, that's the kingdom broken. These prophetic pictures were very powerful in the Old Testament. Nehemiah has got this prophetic picture alongside this priestly one saying, guys, the two pillars of our society are saying, we must remember the poor. We must remember the poor. What is our heart for the poor? What's mine? If we're really honest, is it a bit like, you know, somebody's falling in the river. We lean over and <laughs> shouldn't have got in there. You've really got to learn to swim before you fall in the river. Is that our heart? Look, let me teach you about how to swim. Or do we think, let's just throw them a rope? What is our heart? Proverbs 14, verse 31. He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Book of Proverbs. This is not promises, but it's principles on how to live. Actually, if you oppress the poor, you show contempt for their maker, God. But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Jesus said, and this was to his disciples, my command is that you are to love each other as I have loved you. Now, let's be frank, there could be poor here today. How are we genuinely with the poor? Tim Chester, I quoted in at the beginning, he's, a, like I said, an English author, leads a church in Sheffield. We are to reflect God's grace in the way we treat the marginalized. We are to reflect God's grace in the way we treat the marginalized. Tim Keller, the author of um, a church in New York, says, since he gave us all we have, this is referring to Jesus, we must give him all we are. Since he gave us all we have, we must give him all we are. So point one was, this is the problem that they were facing. They're building these two cities. Point two, this is the solution. Come on, guys, how do we get involved? Point three, I would say, verse 15 to 19, is Nehemiah basically says, this is a lifestyle. This is my lifestyle. That is really what he's trying to say. He didn't say, look, it's word or action. He said, but it's words and action. Nehemiah said, look, this has got to so captivate me, it's got to impact the way that I live. Because he realized that it was more important to build the community than demand his own personal rights. He was entitled to have all these things because he was the governor. But he said, look, I will forsake that for the sake of the people. I think there's three attitudes you can have to money. You need it. You idolize it, or you share it. Which is yours? Which is mine? Are we in a place where we think, God, I just need it? 
Whether it's our heart really that we're idolizing it. Or are we those that are sharing it? Why did he do it? Because he revered God and he loved the people. I am not against wealth. You know, and if you listen to this, you think, oh, golly, Pete, that seems a bit of a basher. We had this prophetic word. We keep referring to it because we believe God spoke to us. We believe that rich people will come here. Great. I am not against wealth. We believe there will be benefactors that invest in the church. Great. I am not against wealth. Nehemiah was rich. As I say, I read these commentators, and I'm not sure if I can add those numbers up. But I quite like numbers. They reckon that he fed between 600 and 800 people a day. Nehemiah did. Yeah, I didn't pick that up from the story. I don't know. That's why I've not written a commentary. You know what I'm saying? You think, man alive. If you add up the ox that he killed, and Nicky read it, over 12 years, that would be 4,380 oxen. I can do the maths. If you add up the sheep that he killed a day over 12 years, which is how long we're told he reigned, it's 26,280 sheep. He was a rich man. I'm not saying that people won't be rich. I am saying what's our lifestyle? In 1 John 3, a letter in the New Testament, it says this, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has not pity on him, How can the love of God be in him? You see, Nehemiah modeled this of of serving his folk. And I would love to think that would be the kind of city that we build here. How do all of us serve one another? John Wesley, who many would consider the father of Methodism, said this, Put yourself in the place of every poor man and deal with him as you would God deal with you. I don't know if you know, I, I, I visited the, the, his church up in London earlier this year. John Wesley had such a heart for the poor that he opened the first ever chemist in London and used to distribute free medicine to the poor. That was his heart. Now, I think the church is doing some great things. I don't want this to be a, a bashing of the church I don't know who adds these things up. I find them fascinating. They reckon the church in the UK last year gave 98 million hours to serving the poor. I mean, that's quite incredible, isn't it? I think the church is often known for that. I think, Tear Fund, what is their strap line? Following Jesus where the need is greatest. Christians who passionately want to put an end to poverty. I think it's great there are Christians out there doing that. I know we've often had these around at the back. I know Edward's involved. In I think it's great to get behind that kind of stuff. I think it's great that as a church, we've pioneered with other churches on the Eating Food Bank. Chatting to Chris this week, 2,500 local people have been fed. Isn't that brilliant? Why? Because we want a church. This is the kind of city that we're building. This is not an optional extra. I would encourage you, bring food, put it in the box at the bank. They are looking for somebody to sort out their finances, be the treasurer. You may have some financial skills that you think, I could give some time. Great, get involved. You may think, actually, I've got spare time I could get involved in. They're looking for a warehouse manager. Speak to Chris. They'd love it. You may say, look, I can't commit to any of that, but I could help one weekend. They're doing a, a collection in Tesco's and the last weekend of November. 
Thursday, Friday, Saturday. You can say, I'll go and turn up for two hours. I will collect tins off the public. I would encourage you to do these kind of things. It is a poor excuse for us as a church to say we can't do everything, so we won't do anything. We are to be those that get involved. Really get involved. Tim Keller again says this. I wasn't sure how many quotes I was going to do. I'm running right out of time, so they're not on the slide. Sorry. If your giving to the needy does not burden you or cut into your lifestyle in any way, you must give more. I, I quote him because then you don't feel bad about me saying that. But I mean, it's quite a challenge, isn't it, if we're really honest? Another guy you've never heard of, so I, I just pretend it's me, but it's not, so take it from him. It says this, if we had a better grasp of what we actually own, what we own, most of us could double, triple, or quadruple the amount we now give. How much we own, whereas often we think, what do I earn each month? Now, I, I'm going to land this. What am I trying to say? I believe that he was building this city Nehemiah, and he thought, I've got to remember the poor. We surely must be a church that thinks, I've got to remember the poor. Gandhi said, didn't he, there's enough for all the world's needs, but not all the world's greed. I guess the challenge is so often we've let ourselves become greedy. Instead, we must be those that remember the poor that share. John Piper, an American author, also says this, that we are to have a millionaire's budget with a wartime mentality. What he used to say was this. He said, in wartime, we spend money differently. There is austerity, not for its own sake, but because there are more strategic ways to spend money than on new tires at home. <laughs> I'm not saying that you shouldn't put new tires on your car, but it was, what he's saying is, look, actually, we should be those that are millionaires. But in war, how do we spend the money? It's quite different. I was chatting to one of my neighbours uh, at the road that we live in. And there's some different houses along it. One guy has lived there for, I think, it's 64 years in our road. And it's funny, because every time I chat to him, he tells me another story. He said, that house there on the corner, Pete, that was bombed in the Blitz. And that's why that house is different. Because actually they rebuilt it. And so they built it like this. And I thought, oh, I'd never realized why the road was so different. I tell you, if you were living in the Blitz in Hanwell, you would have spent your money differently than maybe we do now. You just have a different mentality. Why on earth am I going to make the house look so great? I don't know what's going to happen. I think, how do we keep this kingdom mentality ourselves? Now, you might say, oh, Pete, I haven't got money. You might be the poor here. i tell you what I think is a bigger challenge even for the church. I'm not asking for your money today. I'm not, I'm not going to have a second offering. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to say you've got to do this because I think bigger than making the poor a project is making the poor feel welcome. And sometimes to alleviate our own conscience, we'd give to a project. But actually, I think the heart behind Nehemiah is he wanted to build a community where everyone was in it together, and it had caused a division. I think poverty is this. In part, it's about having no money, but there is more to poverty than that. It is about being isolated, unsupported, uneducated, and unwanted. 
poor people want to be included and not just judged and rescued at times of crises. I think surely the big challenge for us out of a chapter like this is if we really want to build a church and we're taking principles from Nehemiah, we want to welcome the poor amongst us. And not just say, well, there's a project. I encourage you to get behind Tear Funder. Don't get me wrong. But actually, I think sometimes there's a challenge. How do we genuinely embrace that here? I haven't got all the answers. But I'm hoping that from Nehemiah, we will pick up the heart. We'd pick up this heart and think, actually, that's true. It could be a bit, Goddy, you might not feel like it, but you could have that millionaire budget. And you think, actually, how do I do it? Or it could just be it's time. You think, how do I go the extra mile? How do I give time to somebody? How do I look after the lonely, the hurting, include somebody? I believe this would be a challenge. Now, why do we do that? If we're totally honest? Because surely Jesus Christ is our greatest example. Doesn't it say in Corinthians that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor? I mean, he had everything in heaven. I mean, you know... (laughs) I've never been there. I'm looking forward to getting there. You know what I'm saying? They try and describe it. I mean, the place they talk about paved with gold, don't they? Perfect community. No sin. He had everything, yet he gave it all up for us. Surely that's a motivation for us, isn't it? I think this is why we break bread. It's why we've been trying to break bread so regularly as a church. We've been trying to say again, actually, we want to do this because... This impacts the whole way we lead our week. This is not just a five-minute thing. Oh, well, oh, now we're going to break bread, which we are. But actually, this changes everything. You see, because of what Jesus has done for me, that's how I'm going to build a church here. That's how I'm going to embrace and welcome and invite. I'm amazed of his love for me. I know Edward is going to come and lead us as we're just going to be taking this. But this almost is our first way of responding to the message this morning.